read this, 2,000 years removed in time and thousands of miles removed from distance and geography, we can just read through this and not understand the significance of what we just read in verse 13. So Caesarea Philippi, if you were to look at a map, Jesus has gone out of his way to come to this particular place to ask this specific question. You can ask this question anywhere. There's no need to travel 20 miles or 30 miles uh, to a remote place to ask a question when you're already with the people you're going to ask. Does that make sense? Like, hey, I've got a question for all you guys. Uh, So I want you to walk with me for 30 miles and I'll ask you. No, you would just say, "Uh, we're, we're here now. It's hot outside. Just go ahead and ask me right now, right? So he takes him to this specific place, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was known uh, by the locals by two names, depending on their accent. They either called it Panias, with a P sound, or they called it Banias, because they couldn't quite say that P word, that P sound. It was a place named after that goat god Pan, if you remember that from some of the mythological stories. Uh, A god that was known for his debauchery, his wickedness, his drunkenness, his immorality. This was a place of great spiritual wickedness. Caesarea Philippi, if you were to look at it, it's this huge rock face. And on this side of the rock face, there's this cave. And inside this cave, there was a body of water that they believed to be bottomless. In the ancient days, whenever you had a piece of water, a place that was so deep you couldn't touch the bottom, in your mind it was bottomless. And what that constituted then was a gateway to Hades or a gate to hell. I want you to keep that in mind because you know that's this chapter, right? And then uh, coming out of that cave back in the first century would have been a temple dedicated to these different gods. And then on the face of the rock were these little shelves cut out for idols where they worship all kind of gods. On the top of the rock, uh, this was now the foothills of Mount Hermon. Sometimes we think of Mount Hermon as something good. I joke about it. In my refrigerator, the, the Gilstraps got me a 12-pack uh, a of uh, Mountain Dew, and I've been, I've been trying to do my best to be a good steward of that and, and uh, going through it. And I love Psalm 30, 133, verse 3. It talks about, as the dew of Mount Hermon. And so literally, that's Mountain Dew, because it's dew from the mountain. It's right there in the Bible. And, and so we joke about that sometimes in my classes, but... Uh, sometimes Mount Hermon is seen as a place of blessing in the sense that the rain hits the top, top, tallest part in the, in the Holy Land, and then it trickles all the way down into the Dead Sea, and so it's sometimes viewed that way. But also in the ancient world, Mount Hermon was the place where there was a group of angels that rebelled against God. They didn't get cast into hell. They got cast out of heaven to earth, and the place they came to in their tradition was Mount Hermon. And so at Mount Hermon, they set up their own empire, their own kingdom, their counterfeit kingdom to God's kingdom. So, so it, this is the equivalent of America's great image. So in the 1980s, we always had our great image. We always pictured it as Russia. You know, that was always in the, in the movies was like, we got, we're going to battle Russia. And so it would be the equivalent of like a Vladimir Putin coming right to the White House and saying, I'm going to build Russia right here. Okay, so, so when Jesus is going to make a statement, he's, he's taking them to the very heart of spiritual wickedness. He's taking them to the very place uh, where the, the center, the headquarters of the demonic kingdom exists to ask him a question. Whom do men say that I am? And so they said, oh, I, I heard some people say you're John the Baptist. Okay. I heard somebody say you were Elijah or Elias. Oh, okay. Uh, I heard that uh, somebody thought you were Jeremiah. I've heard a lot of, but what keeps coming up is that you're one of the prophets. Okay. More importantly, I have another question. Whom say ye that I am? 
I know what everybody else is saying. That's good. But I'm spending my time with you. And we're about to go on ministry together, and you're going to see me do some things, and what I do is going to validate who I am, and who I am is going to give me the authority to do what I'm going to do. So I want to know right now, in your minds, who am I? And I brought you to the place of the spiritual wickedness, the headquarters of all wickedness, to ask this question. And Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I'm going to give you a new name. From this forth, you're going to be known as Peter. Uh, it'd be the equivalent of saying, I'm going to give you a nickname, I'm going to call you Rocky. That's, that's the equivalent, right? Uh, I'm, you're solid, you're stable, I'm going to call you the rock. But now Peter, upon this rock... Right here, this Mount Hermon with the temple coming out of it, with all of these places to worship all the false gods. Up on this rock, above all of this, where they have all of their assemblies, above all of that, I'm going to build my assembly. And the gate of hell can't prevail against it. This is where Jesus came to make sure they understood who he was. that He was God. Now, today, a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus. Great. Question would be then, which Jesus do you believe in? So let's take a quick moment and watch a, a short video to help us get our minds wrapped around this thought. Not much uh, dialogue. It didn't take us very long to write that script. <laughs> it didn't take us long to memorize our lines either. The Mormons will tell you they believe in Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. The Jehovah's Witness will tell you we believe in Jesus. It's a different Jesus. According to the Bible, Jesus is God. Now, what evidence do we have for that. So with that in mind, let's talk about the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses may believe in Jesus, Mormons may believe in Jesus, even the Hindus will have sometimes out of their 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 gods or more that they worship, sometimes you'll even see a picture of Jesus in a Hindu temple. But 
Who is Jesus according to the Bible? Who is the Jesus that we are putting our faith in for salvation? Which Jesus you believe in? So, evidence number one. What evidence do we have for Jesus being God incarnate? We could ask this question. What's in a name? What are his titles? Uh, what are his names? What, are his, what did he say about himself? And first of all, we'll say this. He's called God. Jesus was actually called God in the Bible. And not just in the New Testament. It starts in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, and again, there's a place that you can write some verses down. I'm going to give a lot of references today, and I'm going to sort of do it very, very quickly. But in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive... A virgin shall conceive. This is miraculous, supernatural. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. What's his name going to be called? Emmanuel. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew quotes that exact same verse, but he does us a favor. He says, now, I'm using a Hebrew name here, but I'm writing to uh, some people who may, not, may have forgotten what that meant. So, uh, those who may be reading this in Greek, I want to give you an interpretation, which being interpreted is God with us. Isaiah 7.14 prophesies that the coming Messiah would literally be God with us. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says that uh, there's coming one who uh, is going to sit on the throne of his father David. Of the increase of his government, there would be no end. What's his name? Well, his name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, next phrase, the Mighty God. And then he's also called the Everlasting Father, or literally the Framer or the Father of all eternity. Only an eternal being can be the Framer of eternity, right? But he's called the Mighty God in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Where else? Well, in John chapter number 1, verse 1. John starts his gospel very differently than Matthew and Luke. They start with these genealogies. He starts very differently than Mark. Mark starts, hey, Jesus is 30 years old. He's coming to get baptized. Oh, there he goes. He's in ministry now. But John goes much further back than any of them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's not where he stops, though. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. All things were created or made by Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. So, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. In him is life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. John starts out his very gospel by driving home the point, Jesus is God. John 1, verse 1. John chapter 20, verse 28, we referenced this verse yesterday. Thomas in the upper room sees the resurrected Jesus, and he says, Oh, you are my Lord. You are my God. Thomas calls him God. John calls him God. Isaiah prophesied he would be God in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says it this way, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. I love this phrase. God was manifested in the flesh. That's what he says about Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, there's a verse there that I think sometimes we misunderstand. We get excited because it talks about Jesus coming again, looking for the, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, but there's a little phrase there that sometimes we maybe don't understand the grammar. Uh, and so it says, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Notice how I just punctuated that. Looking for the glorious appearing, the blessed hope. Who are we looking for? The appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not, we're looking for the appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's not two different people here. Jesus Christ is the one who's appearing, and who he is called is the great God and our Savior. That's who Jesus is, according to the grammar of Paul's letter. Uh, he is God, and he's coming again. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that in Jesus, in him, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul is calling Jesus God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Hereby we know the love of God. The love of God. How, how do we know that? Because he laid down his life for us. Wait, wait, who laid down his life for us? Jesus did. But notice 1 John 3.16 says, God laid down his life for us. John, again, calling Jesus God. You say, well, maybe Isaiah was wrong, and maybe Paul was wrong, and maybe John was wrong, and maybe, maybe all of these people, they just didn't get it right. Well, let me give you a more of an authoritative uh, witness then. Let's go to Hebrews chapter number 1. I love this chapter. In fact, if I could only have one chapter to talk about Jesus being God, I would ask for Hebrews 1. I love the way it starts. It doesn't start Paul the Apostle unto. It doesn't start with Peter unto. It just says God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So get rid of all the phrases of this, and we can simplify it by saying God hath spoken by his Son. Now, who is his son? Now, now here comes the descriptions. He's the one who is the heir of all things. He's the one by whom also he made the worlds. Again, a reference to Jesus being the creator. Jesus, verse 3, is the brightness of God's glory. Jesus is the express image of his person. Literally, everything that God is in spirit, Jesus is in body. He's the image of who God is. Jesus is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the one who by himself purged our sins. Jesus is the one who has sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the one who is so much better than the angels, because he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hey, quick question for you. How many angels are there in the Bible? What's, does the Bible ever give a count or a number? It's a trick question. Hebrews 12 talks about an innumerable host of angels. We can't count them. There are innumerable angels. Okay. How many do you know by name? What names do you know? Gabriel. He's okay. There's another one. Who? I love Michael. That's a great name. That's a great name for an angel. I I don't know why I like that name so much, but I I think it's a great name. Gabriel. We got Michael. Who else? Satan, Lucifer. So now we're, we're, we're going to the dark side. Okay. <laughs> We're finding names. Who else we got? We have one in Revelation who has two names, Abaddon and Apollyon. Okay, so we'll count him twice since it's two names, but really it's only one guy. Mm, who else? Now, the angel of the Lord. But then we get into Theophanies versus Christophanies, and that can be confusing. How about Clarence? Clarence, and it's a wonderful life, so <laughs> that's a name. Uh, here's the point. Innumerable angels. We can name two of them that are good angels. Have you ever heard the name Jesus? He has a more excellent 
name than they all. The name of Jesus. At his name, every knee will bow. At his name, every tongue will confess. Verse 5, For unto which of the angels said he, the Father, at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee? None of them. And again, to which of the angels did he say, I'll be to him the Father, and he'll be to me a son? None of them. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten in the world, he, the Father, saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. God the Father actually is commanding the angels to worship his Son. Well, who's worthy of worship? <laughs> Not man. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But now, look at verse 8. Let's eavesdrop on a conversation in heaven. But unto the Son, he, the Father, saith, Thy throne... What's the next two words? What does the Father call the Son? Oh, and he says that he has a throne, and he says his throne is eternal, and he has a scepter of righteousness, and it's a scepter of his kingdom. If you don't take the witness of Paul, and you don't take the witness of John, and you don't take the witness of some Isaiah and others, would you take the witness of God that he might know who his son is? And God the Father calls the Son God. So Jesus is called God, but more than that, the argument then becomes, okay, okay, I see it. I see people are calling him God. But Jesus never claimed it himself. And again, we would say that's false. Jesus claims to be equal to the Jehovah of the Old Testament. You remember in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses is asking, hey, who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? Who do I tell them? What did God say to him? Tell them, I am hath sent you. Turn to John chapter number 8. John 8, <clears throat> verse 58. In the context, he's talking about Abraham, verse 56. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He, he actually looked forward in faith to see the day I was coming. He saw it, he was glad. The Jews said, you're not even 50 years old. I, that, that was my life verse until a year ago. Now I can't claim that anymore. And thou hast, and have you seen Abraham? And I love Jesus' answer. Now, guys, sit down for a minute. <laughs> I'm about to tell you something that's going to sort of shake your world. I say unto you before Abraham was, I am. Oh, he's just claiming to be old. Okay. What was their response? Verse 59. They took up stones to cast at him. Why would they pick up stones to try to kill Jesus? You don't try to kill old people. <laughs> you take up stones because according to the Jewish law, if this man is not who he claimed to be, he just blasphemed and he's worthy of death. And so they're picking up stones because Jesus claimed to be equal to the I am of the Old Testament. Turn to John chapter 17. John 17, verse number 5. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. If Jesus existed before the world was, what attribute is that? If he existed before time, how would we describe Jesus? He's eternal. So we see that here, but we also see something else. We see Jesus saying that he actually shared the glory of the Father, that they, they had this in common, they had this in union. But when you read Isaiah 42, verse 8, Jehovah says, My glory I'll not give to another. So in one testament, I don't share my glory. In another testament, Father, you remember that glory you and I shared before the world was? So if either God does share his glory with other people, uh, man included, or Jesus is claiming to be a class distinct from everybody else God excluded in Isaiah 42, verse 8. 
Jesus, in fact, is claiming to be God. This is a claim that he makes by sharing in that glory. Look at John chapter number 10. John 10, verse number 11, and verse number 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says it twice. I can't tell you how many times I've heard messages from John 10, verse 11 and 14, where the the text is about Jesus, but the sermon ends up being about us. So Jesus is claiming to be the good shepherd, and so I've heard pastors or preachers say, now Jesus is claiming to be the good shepherd, that means we are sheep, and let me tell you about sheep. Sheep are dumb. And we go into these analogies of how sheep are dumb. And, and you know, sheep are Baptists because they butt heads, and so the shepherd has to anoint their head with oil. And, and so we go through all of these different things. And, and we miss the importance of what Jesus just said. One of the rules of hermeneutics is to try to understand the words that were spoken by the first century, not 2,000 years removed. And in the first century, there's, there's two things that Jesus says here that would have been red flags. First of all, Jesus says, I am the good, good He says, I am good to a Jewish mind, that Jewish sensibility. This is problematic because there is none good, not one. The only good one is God. And then he said, I am the good shepherd. And they didn't think, oh, he just said, I'm a dumb sheep. No, they said, wait, we already have a good shepherd. David identified him for us in Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord, Jehovah, is my shepherd. He's the one who will make me to lie down in good pastures. He's the one who will lead me by the still waters. He's the one that will restore my soul. Who are you? Oh, I am the good shepherd. Jesus was taking a title that was reserved for Jehovah, claiming it for himself. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord, Jehovah, is my light and my salvation. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the true source of light. In Revelation 1, verse 8, verse 17, and Revelation chapter 21, verse 6 and 7, Jesus claims to be the first and the last, or the Alpha and Omega. And so the Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's the beginning and he's the ending. He's the first, he's the last. That's, That's the idea behind it. I'm the A and the Z, if we want to use it in our terminology. It just doesn't quite sound as cool. Alpha and Omega sounds better than A and Z, okay? And so Jesus is claiming to be the first and last. And so we we, we love that. What we sometimes miss, though, is in Isaiah 44, verse 6, Jehovah said, I am the first and I am the last. Jesus was claiming, he was quoting the very words of Jehovah and taking it to himself. He was claiming to be equal to Jehovah. Now, There's more places where Jesus is called God. There's more places where Jesus claims equality with Jehovah. I'm giving you examples so that as you read through your Bible, you can say, hey, there's another person who called Jesus God. I'll put that verse with this. Jesus just claimed to be equal with God. I'll put that verse here, and you can build on the handout that I've given to you. Jesus also says that he is the Lord. this word is the New Testament equivalent of the word, it's the word Jehovah. It's, it's, he's literally claiming to be deity. When you read Philippians chapter 2, I just alluded to it a moment ago. One day, every knee shall bow. One day, every tongue will confess. What will they confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. God will be glorified when people recognize who Jesus is. 
and so many other verses where Jesus is called Lord. Uh, so I won't go through all of it, but I just want you to understand what the importance is. See, in the Roman world, they took a pinch of incense and they would drop it in the fire and they would say, Caesar is Lord. And Christians couldn't do that in good conscience. So they would take that pinch and they would say, Jesus is Lord. Oh, you misunderstood. It's Caesar. Jesus is Lord. No, you misunderstood. It's Caesar. No, you misunderstood. There's only one Lord. Sometimes they were punished. Sometimes they were even put to death for not acknowledging the fact that Caesar was deity because in their mind he is not. Only Jesus is Lord. Now, he also claims to be the Son of God. Let's look at John chapter 5. John 5, verse 17. Jesus here uh, has just uh, completed a miracle. In verse 2, he's healed somebody at a pool called Bethesda. Uh, this is literally Beit, which means house, like Bethel, uh, Bethlehem. This is house of God or house of bread. This is Beit. Uh, and then there's the other word here is the word for mercy. It's literally the house of mercy. This is a great picture. Next to the temple complex was this pool over here. But it was a place designated to worship Roman God, a Roman God of healing. For 38 years, this Jewish man, which didn't go to the temple but came to this Roman temple, waited there for healing. And and one day Jesus walked by and said, you're looking for healing in the wrong place. You want to know about mercy? You want to know who the house of mercy is? Let me come over here and heal you. And Jesus did that for him. Now the miracle is over. And verse 17 Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. You know, today if somebody says, hey, my dad works and I work, we would go, that's awesome. I'm so glad to see a guy and a father and son who are not afraid of work. That's awesome. But notice what their response was, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to congratulate. No, no, that's not what it says. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him for two reasons. One, he'd broken the Sabbath, but also... He said that God was his father. And how do they understand that? When Jesus claimed to be the son of God, he was claiming to be equal with God. So what that means is every time in the Bible where the father calls him the son, or he claims to be the son of God every single time in the first century, that was Jesus claiming to be equal to God. It's a great verse. And it's worthy of our attention as we look through it. So Jesus claims to be the Son of God. So we have this evidence here, number one, his titles or his claims and and what people called him. Evidence number two, his works. His works. What does Jesus do? Remember I said earlier, who Jesus is, if he's God, it validates what he does. And what he does, if he really is God, then it validates who he is. So what did he do that would show that he is God? Well, first of all, we've mentioned already he's involved in creation. John 1, 1, 2, and 3, we read it. Uh, Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, we read it. Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, we didn't read those, but all three of these, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all say that Jesus is the creator. He said, I thought Genesis 1, 1 said, in the beginning, God created. Bingo. God created, and his name is Jesus, okay? So Jesus was the member of the Godhead involved in the actual creation of the world. And so he creates. What else does he do? Well, he forgives sins. He does this throughout the Gospels. There's one passage in particular that illustrates the importance and what he's claiming when he forgives sins. So turn to Mark 2. This is a story of an event that takes place in Capernaum, probably Peter's house. 
Four men are trying to get a friend to Jesus. He's been paralyzed. He's on a cot. They can't, he can't walk, so they're carrying him. They can't get to Jesus because there's so many people around the house. They can't get in. But they're not going to be deterred. What did they do? Climbed up on the roof. Tore back the thatchet and the, uh, the, the mudding and all these things that sort of uh, provided the covering. They pulled it back. And they dropped this man right down in front of Jesus. Hey, this is who you're looking for, sir. Boom, there he is. Do you know when Jesus saw their faith and his faith, so collectively when he saw their faith, he said to the man sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee. He didn't say, man, what faith? I'm going to heal you. That's not what he said first. What he said first was, your sins are forgiven. And if he never healed him physically, that was worth the price of admission. Okay? Because he's going to walk away a redeemed man, a justified man. Well, there were certain of the scribes sitting there, verse 6 says. And they're reasoning in their hearts. They're not saying this out loud. It's in their heart. They're saying, this man is speaking blasphemies. Uh, who can forgive sins but God only? And you don't want to have these thoughts when Jesus is in the house. Because Jesus knows your thoughts. And so Jesus says, hey guys, I, I, I perceive in my spirit what you're reasoning within yourselves. And so why are you thinking these things? Now, let me help you. What's easier? Is it easier to say to this man sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee? Or is it easier to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk? Let me help you. Let's say that uh, I claim to be a healer. Okay. I am the next Benny Hen, okay? I'm a healer. I just need more hair, okay? And so uh, you bring to me someone who hasn't walked his entire life, and you say, please heal him. And the crowd is watching, and the cameras are on, and we're going to broadcast this live to prove that you are a great healer. something better, something better, your sins are forgiven you. Sounds spiritual? And uh, you can't see what happens eternally? Go in peace, my child. Go in peace. Well, what's easier? That's easier. What if I said to him, okay, arise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, I'm either a healer or I'm not. There's no faking it now. Either he's going to get up and walk or he's going to say, I don't feel like it today. Uh, and so uh, I, there's going to be a problem if he doesn't. So Jesus says, okay, now because of their faith, I healed, I forgave his sins. And because of your unbelief, here's what I'm going to say, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up your bed, and go thy way into thy house. Immediately he arose, he took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we've never saw it on this fashion. The, the scribes asked the right question. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus said, that's the right question. So now you understand who I am, who I'm claiming to be when I forgive this man's sins. I am claiming a divine prerogative. I have the authority to forgive this man's sins. So every time in the Gospels when you read that Jesus forgave sins, it's an indication of a claim to deity. But then Jesus also received worship. Uh, in Matthew chapter number 2, Matthew's gospel is replete with examples of this. Of course, we've already looked at Hebrews 1.6 where the Father actually commands the angels to worship him. But in Matthew 2, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. Going, just sticking in Matthew's gospel for a moment, a few pages over, Matthew 8, verse 1 and 2. He came down from the mountain, and great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him. Or if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Next chapter, 
chapter 9, verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, a certain ruler came and worshipped him. You notice these guys all have a need, but before they present the need, they worship first. My daughter's even now dead. And Jesus never deflects the worship or rebukes them for worship like the angel in the Revelation says to John, get up, don't worship me. (laughs) I'm just an angel, don't worship me. Jesus never rejects the worship. He always receives it. Matthew 14, verse 33. Uh, And we have a similar story here. Now here's a woman. And uh, I'm sorry, this is a story where they're in the ship. Uh, There has been this uh, storm, and Jesus just rebukes the wind and the waves. So then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him. They just saw his power over nature and said, Of a truth, you are the Son of God. Chapter 15. Uh, Here's this Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus is uh, going way out of his way to meet this woman in Tyre and Sidon. It's the only time in the Gospels he goes to this area. And he goes and meets this Gentile woman, and she comes to him, verse 25, and worships him, saying, Lord, help me. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse number 9, And as they went to tell his disciples, Jesus met them, saying, All hell, and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Verse 17, When they saw him, they worshipped him. So Jesus is receiving worship. Uh, which is a a mark of deity. He also gives eternal life. What kind of being can give eternal life? (laughs) An eternal being. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life. Uh, John 3, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. So we have evidence number one, his names or his titles. Evidence number two, his works. Evidence number three, let's talk about his attributes. His attributes. Does he have the characteristics of God or not? Well, first of all, we learn that he has the attribute of omnipotence or all power. In Matthew 28, this great commission, Jesus says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He has all power. John 4, verse 18, he's omniscient. means he knows everything. Now, as a kid, I thought I knew everything. Uh, And my parents said, Mike, why do you think you're such a know-it-all? And they'd have to rebuke me and train me and help me understand that they knew things I didn't know, etc., right? And, uh, you know, the older you get, the more you realize how wise your parents were type thing. And so uh, I've come to the conclusion I don't know everything. Painfully, woefully aware of that. In John chapter 4, verse 18, the woman at the well leaves her water pot, goes back and says, Come to meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. He knows everything about me. In John chapter 16, Jesus has performed another miracle in his disciples. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things. Jesus was omniscient. Jesus was omnipresent. In the Great Commission, he tells them to go into all the world, right? But then he says, and lo, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the world. I'm, I'm, so when you go this way, and you go this way, and you go that way, and you go this way, and then you scatter out above that, I just want you to know, whatever direction you go, I'm also going with you. Have you ever tried to be two places at the same time? It's really, really difficult. Okay? Uh, there's something called limitations, because we are finite beings. But Jesus doesn't have that limitation. Why? Because he is God. He's immutable. Hebrews 13, verse 8 The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
my grandpa used to say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Uh, the idea being that he just he never changes. And that's true of God the Father. It's also true of God the Son. There's not even a shadow of turning in him. He's just consistently the same. He's eternal. We've mentioned that's another attribute. He's holy. How about that one for an attribute? Hebrews 7 verse 26 says that he's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, there's no guile. 1 John 3, 5, in him is light. There's no darkness at all. He is a holy God by definition. We look at the evidence. Let me give you a couple of thoughts to think about. Okay? You remember we started in Matthew chapter 16? And Jesus said, upon this rock I will do what? I'll build what? My church. We often say, I'll build my church. But let's just think for a minute. I will build my church. Okay? I want to emphasize that. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 for just a minute. When I was a, a little boy, this was the verse my parents shared with me often at church. <laughs> One particular service, my dad took me out seven times uh, to have what we called in Georgia a come-to-Jesus meeting. <laughs> we'd go out to the stone table where we'd have dinner on the grounds and uh, my dad would say, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. And it's, I remember thinking, <laughs> no, since both of us being hurt, let's just skip it. Uh, and so that didn't quite work either. But this was sort of the verse. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Who said he would build the church? Jesus said, I will build my church. Whose church is it? It's the church of the living God. Jesus' church is the church of the living God. Who is Jesus? He's God. Notice we don't call this the house of Jesus. We often refer to this as a house of God. Why is that? Because Jesus is God. You know, if you were to read the, the Old Testament, you would find often the law says this, and the law says this, and the law says this. But when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear Jesus saying this. You have heard that it was said in former times, thou shalt not... But I say unto you. Now imagine a preacher coming here and saying something like this. Hey, I know that the Bible says this, but here's what I say. Yeah. Now, what we would say is, hey, time out. We don't really care what you say. We care what the Bible says. Because when a preacher puts himself as an authority above the Bible, it's time for us to start looking for another church, right? So with that mindset, then imagine somebody coming to you and saying, now, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Here's what it says, but here's what I say. Now, you have these 613 commandments, but a new commandment I give them to you. What is he claiming there? He's claiming to have authority even over the Old Testament scriptures. Do you remember on the cross that Jesus was pierced? Do you understand that in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, Jehovah says, they'll look on me whom they pierced. Jehovah in the Old Testament prophesied that they would pierce him. Who was pierced? Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God. We often, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we'll go to Romans 10, verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's read Joel in conclusion, Joel 2. Joel 2, verse 32. And let's just see if that sounds vaguely familiar to what we just said. In Joel, we read that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, all caps, all caps, uh, a reference here to Jehovah. Whosoever shall call, in that day, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, all caps, 
shall be delivered. That's how it's translated in the Old Testament. It's the same word. When we read Romans 10, verse 13, we're actually reading a quotation of a verse that's applied to Jehovah that is now being applied to Jesus. How can the writer do that? Because Jesus is God. This is what we see over and over again. So, is Jesus a liar? He's letting people call him God, and he's claiming to be God? Is he a lunatic? Uh, Hey, uh, I know what the Bible says, but here's what I say. Listen to me. Or is he the Lord? What does the evidence say? Well, when I look at the evidence, Jesus is called God by many people and by the Father. He claims to be equal to the Father. He is called the Lord. He actually makes himself equal to God. That's the evidence. What other evidence? Well, he does what only God can do. He creates, he forgives sins, he gives eternal life. These are, these are things that only God can do. And he's, he's doing this work of God. He's receiving worship. What else? Well, when I look at the way the Bible describes God and I look at the attributes of Jesus, they're the same. So what does the evidence point to? The evidence points to the fact that Jesus is God. That video I started with, I've I've joked with others that uh, maybe I should add a fourth scene in that. And the fourth scene is the two guys coming down dressed as perhaps a, a devil or a demon because the Bible says the devils believe in God with fear and trembling. Which Jesus do you believe in? Well, in matters of eternity, it really does matter. We need to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus of the Bible claimed to be God. And I hope that gives us pause to challenge and to think about. Well, let's pray. And then any announcements, Pastor Kyle can come up and give it to us. Lord.